This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 24, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The difficulty in hiring laborers from any low-wage jobs continues as many states are now opting out of the enhanced unemployment benefits that are compounding the employer challenge. Cato's Ryan Bourne details some of the evidence gathered during this waning pandemic about what's driving employment hesitancy and how employers are responding. Having recently been somebody who's gone back to restaurants, it has been interesting and I guess a little bothersome to watch and try to have compassion for uh, the staffs at restaurants who are, at least in the case of servers, I see are having to serve many more tables than they otherwise would be. That sort of lowers their uh, the 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 happiness they might take in their work, and for customers, it's certainly not any better, and it might lead some of them to to feel like, well, I'm just not, I'm going to be a, a stingy guy here and not tip as well as I might had the service been better. But it's it's definitely a difficult situation for businesses, and yet I see in a lot of the reporting about unemployment. There is still uh, broadly a lot of skepticism about the degree to which expanded unemployment benefits or benefits in general that are uh, given to the unemployed are contributing to uh, the lack of available workers for businesses. What do we know now that we didn't know a, a couple months ago about what is actually driving this uh, lack of uptake, given all the jobs that are available right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the restaurant sector, as you say, is a microcosm of what's been going on with the labor market broadly. And I would define the situation as essentially, as things are reopening, demand for a whole bunch of activities is surging back, and supply is failing to keep up. And you can see that in some of the kind of micro level data we see for different sectors. So an example of this, as you say, in leisure and hospitality, if you look at the average hours worked by people who are actually employed at restaurants, that's gone up to quite historically high levels, which is suggestive of the fact that employers are struggling to find new workers, so are having to um, have existing employees work more. Um, We've also seen the fact that uh, teenage unemployment has fallen to its lowest level since 1953. Of course, teenagers don't tend to be eligible for um, unemployment insurance benefits. Quite often, they don't have employment histories. So that's suggestive of um, firms trying to find workers that perhaps they wouldn't have used uh, in the past for these jobs. Um, And as you say, um, there's there's this kind of really interesting situation whereby even though we're still tons of jobs short, 10 million across the economy as a whole, from where we might have been had the pandemic not hit. Um, the quit rates in, uh, in in the restaurant and hospitality sector, well, food services and accommodation, is at a really high level. Uh, I think that's in part because of staff being overworked for the reason you said, but also because as firms are trying to attract employees um, because supply has been constrained, they're having to offer signing on bonuses. They're having to offer um, higher wages. And so that's leading some people who are existing employees and some businesses to look around and say, well, actually, maybe my prospects would be better elsewhere. So what do we know about what's driving this? Well, I think that um, clearly kind of basic economics would suggest that things like unemployment insurance combined with um, the stimulus checks and everything else, um, if you pay people 
um, more to stay at home, then on the margin, you're going to get uh, workers decide not to opt back into the labour market. Now, last year, of course, the supplemental unemployment benefits were higher. They were $600 rather than $300. But at that time, there were a lot of people being recalled to their old jobs. Um, and if you're being recalled to your old job, um, you can't really, uh, you know, technically, um, if you refuse to take up that offer, you risk losing the benefits um, entirely. And we didn't know whether the benefits were going to be renewed. Um, this year has been different. You know, these things have been extended or were initially extended all the way through to September. So there was a degree of uh, certainty. And, uh, and and as things opened up, I think that combination of the $300 plus the stimulus checks did deter people from entering back. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why 26 governors um 25 Republicans and the first uh, Democrat quite recently in, in Louisiana have decided they actually want to end the supplemental uh, uninsurance benefits. So we've got a really bizarre labor market right now. I think policy is part of the picture. I also think people reassessing what they want to do with their lives and reassessing where they see the best prospects for them working is another part. Uh, but it's led to this bizarre situation where, as I say, we've got millions and millions of jobs short from where we might uh, want to be in the in the longer term people moving all over the place a big reallocation going on all right so uh what's the practical consequence for that uh at, for the economy well i think in the in the near term in sectors where demand is massively outstripping supply you're going to see uh increased wages as we've seen and signing on bonuses firms will try and manage their longer term fixed costs by um, trying to, you know, temporarily use temporary incentives to attract people. But in, in certain sectors, um, if it's the case that the pandemic has led people to reassess what they want to do with their lives and, and we're permanently going to see a reduction in supply, say, of, of people working in, in food and accommodation sectors, even as demand steps in, then um, companies can't keep increasing uh, wages for a given level of productivity, they eventually reach a stage where they might start considering some of those more risky investments in um, automating certain parts of their services or cutting back on what some might perceive as um, kind of quality enhancements in services. So have, having people at the table ordering their own uh, drinks or food, um, eventually you might even see some of them even bigger investments in things like burger making machines, which we hear about uh, sometimes. So these are all kind of micro level adjustments. On the bigger picture, I suspect what will happen is now that many states have removed the extended unemployment insurance and supplemental unemployment insurance programs, we'll see a period of uh, adjustment um, over the next year, whereby as that labor supply comes back in, um, we will see um, we we will see those shortages kind of dissipate, um, but the truth is, I think nobody really knows where the economy is going to settle down. Right, so we've had this big pandemic. Originally, last year we were talking about freezing the economy and then kind of defrosting it, reopening it at some stage. But in the interim, consumers' uh, demands on on what they want have changed. Um, many um, offices. Uh, as ours is at the moment, uh, Caleb, are thinking through how they want to reopen and whether they're going to move permanently to a kind of hybrid form of working. That changes the spatial composition of demands for things like uh, fast food and restaurants and the like. 
So as all this plays out, we really need to return to a market economy. So we need to remove the emergency programs, uh, let consumers, businesses and workers figure out what they want to do. And, um, you know, market prices and wages will adjust and eventually will settle down to a newer type of equilibrium. Uh, for the states that have decided we're gonna we're gonna continue with the enhanced unemployment benefits or we're going to drop out of the enhanced unemployment benefits, is that a natural experiment? Are, are we close to a natural experiment here, where the, there's a pretty clear dividing line of whether or not uh, a state has adopted or decided to maintain these benefits, and uh, what could we learn from that? I, I wouldn't call it a natural experiment because, of course, some of these states were. Uh, repealing these um, you know, supplemental uninsurance benefits precisely because their labor markets were heating up pretty significantly. And it shouldn't surprise us that some of the some of the states that removed these benefits quite early on were those that had extremely low um, unemployment rates in the first place. You know, thinking of places like uh, like Utah, Nebraska, Iowa and, and the Dakotas. Um, so I, I don't think we can call it a natural experiment. Of course, there will be people that try to look at um, borders between two states where the economy might be very interlinked and, and try to perceive whether the unemployment insurance benefits being removed in across one border uh, leads to, to, to big differences in outcomes from across the border. I tend to be more skeptical of those um, of those studies because... You know, a lot of people do work backwards and forwards, and the fact that one state has removed the unemployment insurance benefits can provide a signal to people living just across the border that this is something that might end soon. So there's all sorts of difficult um, confounding factors. I think there will no doubt be lots of assessments um, of it. Uh, but as I say, I don't think we can call it an, a natural experiment for, for both the reason that many of the states that removed this early on were those that were doing very well on unemployment. And also, you know, many of the other states that have still maintained them, you think of a state like Hawaii, is probably going to be struggling for quite a long time instead of in terms of um, the normalization of tourism taking some time, especially for international visitors. All of this is happening amid a continued push for a national $15 uh, minimum wage. I can imagine Democrats, I spoke about this with uh, Logan Collis of the Buckeye Institute uh, recently, that, hey, if you're a Democrat and you want to make some political capital out of all this, you say, look, these unemployment benefits are great because they're forcing employers to raise wages. And that's that's ultimately what we wanted in the end anyway. So what do you make of within the context of this uh, crazy labor market? the continued push to try to secure a national $15 an hour minimum wage or higher? Well, you know, last year, I didn't understand why Democrats were so keen on $600 being the level of the supplement of the unemployment insurance benefits. And then I realized it was $15 times a 40-hour week, and it made much more sense. Um, I can understand why they're making that argument. And of course, labor markets being tight as a result of this surging demand with constrained supply is leading to uh, increases in, in wages uh, that are getting closer to that $15 uh, in many sectors. So uh, I can see from a kind of political stance why, uh, why so few Democrats have actually come out uh, and opposed to these um, supplemental UI benefits. But 
there's been some really interesting research recently on hikes in minimum wages. Is this something that I've written on before for Cato and, and Jeff Clemens in his paper um, as well? Fundamentally, businesses, unless they're missing out on obvious um, productivity improvements from paying workers more, um, they have a bunch of different options depending on the sector that they're in in terms of adjusting to minimum wages. We tend to focus on the impact of, of jobs or hours worked, but they can also think about their pricing strategies. They can think about what types of workers they employ, or indeed they can think about um, the quality of the work environment that they provide for their workers, not just in terms of the extra benefits that they might give them, but um, how much pressure they put on them to, to work well, uh, how much they track their productivity and things like this. And there's a really interesting study came out in the Harvard Business Review uh, last week by Cuping uh, Yu, Sean Mankad, and Masha Shunko, um, where they looked at the impact of the minimum wage hike on a kind of mid-level US fashion retail chain, which they've had to anonymize for the, the purposes of the study. And what they did was they compared what was going on with that chain in California against Texas from 2015 to 2018. Of course, there were successive minimum wage hikes in California at the time, um, and Texas uh, was just set at the uh, federal uh, minimum wage rate, didn't increase its, its state-level minimum wage. And what they found was really interesting. They found that if you just looked at the overall hours worked, uh, there, was no, there was no kind of difference than what you would have expected had the minimum wage been uh, kept low in California. So if you just looked at overall hours worked you'd, as a kind of proxy for employment, you would have concluded, oh, no, the minimum wage has no overall effect on employment. But what actually they found was um, the business within that had massively changed its workforce composition. It was using many more part-time workers to fulfill the same hours. You know, big changes in the number of part-time workers uh, used, uh, meaning that the average hours of any worker fell pretty significantly as well. Now, why were they doing that? They were doing that because if you used workers um, for much less time each per week, it actually saved the company significant amounts of money by reducing the number of workers who are eligible for retirement and healthcare benefits. So, you know, whatever we think about the, the headline impact of the minimum wage on jobs and hours, there's this rich economic literature that's developing, which actually suggests that um, businesses can adjust on lots of other margins, which... Uh, might not be as observable to us looking at the macro picture, but actually can undermine the welfare of the individual workers. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.